Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome to podcast number 43 with Glenn McIntosh. Glenn is a psychologist who is incredibly passionate about eating, physical activity, weight, and body image. He's the author of the best-selling Thin Sanity, Seven Steps to Transform Your Mindset and Say Goodbye to Dieting Forever, the founder of Weight Management Psychology, and his public work has seen him feature as an on-screen psychologist for Network 10's The Biggest Loser Transformed. In today's episode, Glenn and I chat about how to overcome emotional eating. We start by discussing the differences between emotional eating, binge eating, and disordered eating, and what's required for a diagnosis and treatment plan. We then focus on emotional eating and the reasons we eat when we're emotional or sad. We chat about why women give in in the moment despite knowing better, why we self-sabotage our healthy eating habits, how we can retrain our brain, and how to conquer the I have no willpower frame of mind. Today's podcast is brought to you by my very first Brisbane-based women's health and empowerment event, Empower, Nourish, Sustain. I can't wait to see you there on Sunday, March the 22nd in Brisbane, but hurry, there are only 35 tickets left for the Empower, Nourish, Sustain event. Pop on over to my website, www.leanneward.com.au to purchase the ticket. And thank you guys so much for supporting my very first live Brisbane event. And let's get going with today's podcast with Glenn. Welcome, Glenn, to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you on today talking all about emotional eating. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Leanne. It's good to talk to you. Yes. Now, I'd love for you to tell our listeners just a little bit more about you as a bit of a background and what you do in terms of your work on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, okay. Um, Well, I'm a psychologist and I really, my passion is eating physical activity weight and body image so that's my my real love um and so i still i still see clients a couple of days a week um and then i think that people are sort of starting to to realize the importance of mindset when it comes to your food your exercise your weight and how you feel about yourself so um i've got a team that that is growing so i spend a lot of time supporting my team um and then i think as you would know uh we see in the social media space a lot of rubbish so i think that that good health professionals that practice from an evidence base with a an understanding have a real kind of a, a duty to get out there among people. So I kind of consider my second job all of our online programs and doing a lot of social media, not as much as you, uh, but but all of that probably keeps me pretty darn busy. Yeah, wonderful. Well, you do an amazing job at it, and I. Like I've been so excited to have you on um, talking about this issue of emotional eating because it is something that so many people struggle with and women in particular. And I think the biggest thing that I'd love to start out with you is really just, I guess, some definitions around this because I feel like a lot of women say to me, you know, I'm a binge eater. I have all these binges all the time, but I really find that that line between 
are you emotionally eating? Are you eating because you've stressed, you've had a bad day versus have you had a formal diagnosis of binge eating? Because I really feel like a lot of women use that ter- those terms very interchangeably, um, yeah. but they are very, very different, um, I guess, conditions and things, aren't they? Yeah. Like, you know, like I'm a psychologist, obviously you're a dietitian. I think just when th- just the everyday person talks about, I've had a binge, a lot of psychs and dietitians would go, oh, that's not even close to what we would call a binge. So that's mm-hmm. a, a really good place to start. So, if we let's start by defining binge eating. Mm-hmm. So, binge eating is where you're eating a lot more than would be considered normal, not a little bit more, but a lot more than would be considered normal for a particular situation. Um, and often with a binge, you really do feel a sense of a, a loss of control, and often you're also eating really, really quickly. So, it is a kind of a quite an extreme type of eating, and it's different from just overeating. Um, and you mentioned a, a formal diagnosis. Uh, having binge eating disorder is not where you just have a binge every now and then. You have to to have those binges regularly for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if you feel like you might be doing what a psychologist would call a binge or you feel like you may have binge eating disorder, that would be the, the time to go and see your GP or a psychologist and or a dietitian to get a, a proper diagnosis and a proper treatment plan. Um, if we then move on to emotional eating, mm-hmm. the way that psychs define that is when you're eating more in response to the unpleasant emotions. So we're not talking about um, just enjoying cake or chocolate or all of those yummy things. We really want people to enjoy those things, probably mindfully and in a bit of a balanced way. Mm-hmm. Um But it's when you're really using food to kind of soothe yourself or to deal with unpleasant emotions or to to not feel as bad in some way. So there is obviously a lot of crossover, you know. Sometimes emotions will trigger binges. And, of course, emotional eating can really have binge-like elements. There's a lot of crossover, but, but the way that we would define binge eating and emotional eating is, is quite different. Mm-hmm. And where does that line, I guess, become blurred or what is that real, I guess, difference between a formal diagnosis of binge eating and the emotional eating? I know you said that it has to happen frequently and it has to happen for a period of time to be considered binge eating disorder. Yep. But is it really around that loss of control? Because a lot of women say to me, you know, oh, I just have had such a bad day. I just want to eat some chocolate. I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. And because they're consciously making that decision almost, would you say then that's more that emotional eating due to stress on a bad day versus if somebody has binge eating disorder, it's more like those thoughts don't even really cross through their mind almost? I think I think you're right. What what you're sort of describing there is probably more a type of emotional eating. Mm. And it, it is a tricky one because with emotional eating, there is some sometimes a sense of a loss of control. But with binge eating, I would say that it's a lot more extreme. So emotional eating, for example, might be I had half a block of chocolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, binge eating, for example, and I'm speaking in generalities here, might be I had a block and a half of chocolate. Mm-hmm. Emotional eating may be more I grazed on that over the course of a couple of Netflix episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, binge eating might be I devoured that almost as if I was, you know, watching myself do it or like I was kind of blacked out even for a period and and that could be as as short as 10 or 15 minutes. 
And that is something that is quite common with binge eating disorder, isn't it? Where people almost don't really have a recollection of what sort of happened or it might even happen at nighttime during the night and they wake up the next morning and there's, you know, these empty packets in the kitchen and that sort of thing. Like they might even not really even remember that happening. Yeah, and I think emotional eating also comes with a, you know, a lot of people when they emotionally eat, that's not a habit that they particularly like. Mm-hmm. Um, but often with with binge eating, the, the level of self-loathing and the level of disgust and shame that comes around that is really, really turned up. Definitely. Yeah. So as you mentioned, diagnosed binge eating disorder really does require that professional guidance and that one-on-one assistance with a psychologist. So we're not really going to go down that route today. I'd really like to focus on more of the emotional eating for today's podcast. Um, And then if we get, you know, a really good response from the audience, we can definitely come back and and talk more, take more of a deep dive into the binge eating. But in terms of the emotional eating, because I feel like that is something that, you know, the everyday sort of guy or girl really does struggle with, particularly if they've had a rough week at work or their kids are driving them insane or something like that so in terms of emotional eating why do we eat for for emotional reasons i mean that's a really good question leanne and i think you're 100 percent right that emotional eating is really really normal in in fact it's actually hardwired into our brains you know our, our brains are pretty smart and they uh they connect things that keep us alive mm-hmm. like sleep and sex and of course food with that experience of pleasure so we can we know that if you get a a newborn baby and you just put it on its mum's tummy it innately knows, you know, this thing can't really see properly, can't really <laughs> hear properly, but it knows how to slide around and find the food. And this is a very a very weird thing to, to probably think about in your podcast, but, but I actually think about, you know, the journey of being born mm-hmm. and you think that can't be a pleasant experience from this like warm, safe little bubble you're in into this noisy, bright, loud expanse of the, the world. And shortly after that experience, you find food and you get that collapsing of the physical nurturance that your body needs and the emotional nurturance. And that's kind of the beginning of emotional eating. Um, and so I think that's a really important point that it is absolutely normal. Um, And that means, I think, that we don't have to, you know, a lot of people don't like their emotional eating habits um, and they try to to eliminate it completely. And I don't think we we need to eliminate it completely. I think we want to reduce your emotional eating and we want to broaden out so you have a range of strategies. So emotional eating is just just one of those strategies. Mm -hmm. Uh, When emotional eating becomes your main way to deal with your feelings or your sole way to deal with your feelings, that's when you really start to run into trouble. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really... I guess you're not saying that it's a bad thing and it's definitely normal because it's something that I guess most people or everyone really experiences. And I definitely have myself had a bad day and I've gone, you know, I should probably eat something a little bit better than, you know, a couple of squares of chocolate or whatever, or half a block of chocolate or something. But, you know, I've had a bad day and I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's going to make me feel better. So it really does come back to that. I guess that feeling of comfort. And as you were saying, as a newborn baby, you know, it's a very unpleasant experience entering the world, but then somebody cuddles them, they love them, they feed them and they get those feelings of, um, you know, that comfort feeling. So what you're saying is that it's just a level of, of comfort that, that is provided to us, but, and it's okay to do as long as you're, you've got other um, areas in terms of comfort comforting and nurturing yourself as well. Yeah, 
I think it's like it's like anything. If you rely too much on one strategy, you're going to to run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, in terms of, um, I guess, back to basics tips. If there's people at home who potentially are relying on food as their top um, strategy to overcome a hard day of emotions, yep. where would be your starting place for them, or what are your top tips to um, allow them to have other strategies that they can that they can, um, I guess, assist their emotions with? Yeah, yeah. I think my first tip is actually to to really begin to recognize that emotional eating doesn't work very well. So, of course, say if you're physically hungry, your body needs nutrition, food is going to really do the trick. Mm -hmm. Uh, But often we're kind of misusing food as a kind of an emotion regulation strategy when it's not going to be the most effective strategy for us. So, I, I find that that's often a starting point when I'm working with people around emotional eating is just to recognize that there is no nutritional solution to an emotional problem. Mm-hmm. That uh, and often people end up feeling worse after emotional eating rather than better. So that's why I call it like uh, I think it's like double dipping on a bad mood. Mm-hmm. It's you know you had your original bad mood, you were say stressed from the day, and now you're you've eaten and you're stressed with a side order of guilt or you're feeling sluggish as well. So. I think that that is often the first point of call. And I think that we we do know that emotional eating isn't the best strategy for us. Mm-hmm. But if we can, in real time, acknowledge that no matter how I'm feeling, the answer is probably not in the, the fridge, it's not in the pantry, it's not at the local convenience store, it's not on Uber Eats then if we can close the door almost to strategies that won't work, we always want to feel better. So, if you're stressed and you close the door to a strategy that won't work, you are always going to want something to calm you down. And when you close off the door to strategies that won't work, automatically without even trying, your mind will open up to the strategies that do. So, I think that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, uh, the second thing to do is to actually figure out what you really, really need. So, everyone develops their own kind of adult emotional eating routines based on that neural mapping that we we have innately within us. Um, and for some people, it's a, um, you know, you might do it on your way home from work so no one catches you. Uh, for other people, it's you come home and it's like part of a family ritual or for some mums I know, they do it at the end of the day. It's like, this coveted me time that's nowhere else to be found in the day. And so there are a zillion different ways of emotionally eating, but it all comes down to to one or a combination of a few things. Emotional eating is about resolving unpleasant feelings mm-hmm. or having your unmet wants or needs met or the need to change something important in your life. So, if you can kind of ask yourself, you know, when you're in that moment, a really good way to find out is when you're, um, when you're, you're not physically hungry, but you're still looking for food. And, and a really good way to find out if you're emotionally eating is just to, to ask if any particular food's going to really satisfy you. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, you know, you get in that thing often people have it in the evening where they're like, oh, I don't know whether I want this or this or this. If you're in that situation, it's often because you don't actually need food yeah. at all. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's a really good time to look at your emotions. And I like to just ask myself, is this about food or is this about mood? And, and if you start to dig, you might be able to find that you've actually got some some unpleasant feelings you need to deal with, some some unmet wants or needs that you need to, to honor and satisfy, or you might have something in your life that, that could be very small or very big that needs changing. Mm-hmm. And I love that food versus mood. And um, as you said, I always like to say to my clients, ask yourself the simple question, am I really hungry? And a lot of people say, you know, when they are thinking about emotional eating and they just want this one particular food, it might be chocolate or ice cream or potato chips, they will convince themselves that they they are hungry. So sometimes that question isn't enough for some people. And I like to take it one step further and I say, am I really hungry? Will a healthy food do? You know, like will a carrot do or will, uh, I don't know, some celery sticks do or something like that? And the the honest truth is that if you are absolutely starving, you will eat anything. Even if you don't like celery, if you're absolutely starving, you will eat it. Yeah. And so that's, I guess, a first, a really good first step to differentiate, am I truly hungry or is this more to do with my mood? And then I like to say to my clients, you know, it's okay to eat these foods. It's okay to have some chocolate. It's okay to have some potato chips, but you need to nourish your emotions first. You need to figure out what is this emotion that I'm feeling? Go and nourish that emotion first without food and then come back and, um, you know, enjoy that portion of whatever it is you want. And you'll actually enjoy that so much more because you've nourished that emotion of feeling stressed or sad or lonely or bored or whatever that is and then you're likely to eat far less of it than you were if you didn't nourish that emotion. Yeah, so I think we can put really, I suppose, this whole conversation in, in into sort of a part of uh, mindful or intuitive eating. This stuff only mm. really works if you you are in tune with your sing- signals of hunger and fullness. So then you can notice, am I actually hungry or um, do I need something to eat or do I need to soothe my emotions? Uh, and then, of course, sometimes you, you really do just want a chocolate. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's it's not about any underlying emotions. It's just about that's going to be really yum and tasty. And of course, we want to embrace that. Um, and, and that's where your mindful eating comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are other times where it actually doesn't matter how many chocolates you eat, you're not going to feel better. And that's where you really need to say, hey, this isn't actually about food at all. Mm-hmm. This is about my mood. Uh, so I've got to really find out what I really want and in this situation it it ain't food perfect yeah because you were never really hungry to begin with so no amount of food will ever satisfy you therefore you could eat 10 chocolate bars and you'll still never feel satisfied because hunger wasn't that emotion you were trying to nourish to begin with it was something else entirely and the, the cool thing is leanne that i find is that you know a lot of people start working with me or doing some of our online programs or whatever it is because the, the emotional eating is such a tiresome, draining, upsetting habit, uh, but because it's not actually a very good coping mechanism, the secret source is that when you start to really check in with yourself and notice that there are things in your life that need changing or some feelings that you need to resolve or some some needs that you you have to have met, when you stop emotionally eating, then you start to take care of yourself in a whole range of better ways. So what often happens is you start off this work trying to to overcome this really annoying habit, Mm -hmm. but then you end up sort of um, really transforming your life in even more profound ways because you're actually attending to yourself and there's just so much rich information to be found in your emotions. Mm -hmm. And so you end up really improving your life in far more profound ways than even just getting over emotional eating. 
100%. And I think the the big thing for me in terms of my past and my background is I used to do emotional eating quite often in my past um, was when I realized that <clears throat> a hot shower at the end of a long, hard, stressful day gave me maximal satisfaction, equal or more satisfaction than eating a block of chocolate did. Yep. And when I realized that and I was like, they give me the exact same satisfaction. I can go in and have a hot bath or a hot shower. I feel comforted. I feel safe. I feel warm. You know, chocolate doesn't really do that for me at the end of the day. As you said, it's kind of like that double dick dipping on the negative feelings where you eat it and you feel good in the moment. And then afterwards you feel pretty crappy afterwards because you subconsciously know that you weren't really hungry to begin with. And I think that's a wonderful point, Leanne, is that, you know, we do get told, and I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast will have heard, oh, just just go for a walk instead or just, <laughs> you know, have a glass of water. And, and sometimes that is the answer. But I think where we do fall down is we don't actually reflect on what will really work for us. Like if you talk about your phone, I was just hearing you talking about the, the shower and it's like a, you know, maybe a cleansing at the end of the day. You know, emotional eating for a lot of us does have a real physiological component and you've got the, you know, that warm sort of comforting feeling. And so for you, that just does it. So one thing I would encourage your listeners to do is really go through that process of reflecting and brainstorming and really experimenting and finding what works for you because all of this uh, this neural mapping is tied up in our dopamine receptors and the addiction loop of our brain and we're not really going to develop new habits so to turn from an emotional eater into an emotional showerer <laughs> or an emotional eater into an, what I call an emotional exerciser until we get things that feel just as good. And so I think that's a really, really good point that it, 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 you do have to dig around and you might need to experiment, you might need to practice a little bit, but, but when you get that secret source, that kind of special magic of being able to go, you know what, 99 times out of 100, this new alternative works better than food, that's when you start to really get into creating new habits territory. Definitely. And I love it. So would you say a great, I guess, first, second or third step for our listeners at home is to really ask themselves that question, you know, what food is it that I want? And then what will this food make me feel? Or what is the feeling that I want to get out of this food? Is it happiness? Is it that I'm not so lonely? Is it a feeling of comfort or warmth or safety? And then once I've written that down, what it is they feel like this food is going to give them, then going and finding some alternative strategies that also provide that same feeling or emotion as well. Absolutely. That's a great strategy. And you just really, you're cutting out the middleman. <laughs> you're cutting out the middleman. And if, and, and, and I think that's a wonderful strategy. And if sometimes people get a bit stuck and they don't realize, because sometimes we're not so in touch with our emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be ha that can happen if we're just not used to paying attention to our emotions. It can also, of course, happen if uh, in our formative years, in our childhood, in our early teens, we were told to, to ignore our emotions. You know, we said, hey, mum, I feel this way. And they said, no, you don't feel that way. Or whether we, you know, used to get in trouble or worse uh, because of, of feeling our emotions. So, 
so sometimes if we're not so in touch with our feelings, I find it's really good to just sit down and do what we call free association writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't, if you kind of get to that stage and you've done that strategy and you, you know, you, you, you tried to, to identify what the food is going to make you feel, but you just don't know, just sit down with a blank piece of paper and just begin writing. Don't censor yourself. And what happens is that the answer will, within a page or so, just come to you. My clients do this. I encourage them to do it. And they like they start off their little journal. Sometimes they bring them in. It's like, I'm doing this stupid exercise. Glenn made me do this. <laughs> I can hear a bird outside. And then at half a page, they're like, I can't believe my sister said that to me. She always treats me like I'm the dumb one. And it just <laughs> popped up and you're like, oh, okay, you're really feeling angry and feeling really insecure. And once we can identify those emotions, then we can work with them in a much better way. Definitely. And now we're talking about emotions as well. You mentioned um, some things that are potentially quite difficult for some people linking back to their childhood, that sort of thing. I really wanted to bring up for our listeners at home, the positivities and the benefits of seeing somebody like a psychologist, if they have some emotions that are just too deep, too painful, too raw to actually acknowledge, like if they know that there's something else potentially going on, they know that they're not truly hungry. They can't seem to stop this emotional eating, you know, every night or every Friday night when they're by themselves or that sort of thing. But these emotions are just a little bit too difficult to deal with on their own, or they've just been there for so many years that it's a little bit too confronting. Can you, I guess, um, normalize seeing a psychologist for our listeners at home? Because I feel like there is still that little bit of a stigma attached to you know, or some people will say to me, oh, I don't really need it. But I'll say, no, you have no idea how it will benefit you just talking to somebody else about it, particularly if it is something that's so deep and painful and maybe gone all the way back to their childhood or something. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm a massive advocate, of course, of, of seeing um, seeing a psychologist. I have at times in my life seen a psychologist myself and found it wonderfully useful. But there is this kind of stigma and I've kind of heard all the stigmas that people have about psychologists, you know that they kind of uh, are just there to take all of your money and, you know, see you weekly for two years and just philosophize with no real result. Um, Some people think that psychologists uh, are people who um, are, are sort of really looking to find the problems and they just love talking about all of that deep stuff and finding your deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and, and a lot of people, I think, feel like that if you see a psychologist, there is something wrong with you. Mm. You, you can't do it by yourself or it's a sign of, of weakness or a personal flaw. But this is a weird uh, metaphor there, so, so bear with me. I think one way to think of psychologists is like a car mechanic. So you can absolutely see a psychologist when your car breaks down. It's like something is not working. I need to sort out my mind. So that's something that we, we definitely do. Um, but also, you can see a psychologist just for a, a tune-up. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know what, everything's running okay, but it's good to check in and just see if there are any little things that I maybe hadn't identified and make sure everything's working really, really well, just as a regular kind of a top up. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there are some mechanics like say in Formula One or V8s that do performance enhancement. You can say, hey, my, my car is running really well. It's absolutely fine, but I just want it to run better. I want it to to be faster. I want it to be more economical or something like that. So, so you can see a psychologist really at any stage of your life for any reason. It is a matter of finding the right psychologist that's right for you. Um, 
and and it, it was interesting, Leanne. I'm just thinking about the the conversation that we had before about binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say, well, I only need to go and see a psychologist if I have a diagnosable condition like binge eating disorder or anorexia nervosa or depression. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that for me and probably for all of my team, Roughly 50% of people would have a diagnosable mental health condition, maybe a little bit less. So a lot of people that we're working with don't fit the criteria for quote unquote a mental health issue, mm-hmm. but they just have something important in their life that they they want to take care of. And and some people think it's, you know, it's a bit weird. And I think, well, what's weirder? Going to see someone who's trained to help you sort through your particular problem, whether it's with food or whether it's with relationships or work or some other area of your life, or letting those problems just eat away at you for the rest of your life potentially or even get worse. I mean, to me, that sounds a lot weirder. Yeah. And I love how you, I guess, normalize it as well. Because what I was really hoping that you chat about is you don't have to have a formal condition or a diagnosis, or a lot of people think, oh, I'm not, you know, bad enough to go and see a psychologist. Yep. But it is just so helpful to have that outsider's opinion. You know, sometimes we can't see what's literally right underneath our nose. And it's so simple. And someone says it to you, and it's like, oh my God, what didn't I think of that? Yeah, absolutely. And I just, so if anyone is out there thinking about, um, about doing it, uh, I would, uh, I would encourage you to be brave and look, I'll share with you that I've just said all of this to you. I'm a psychologist. I'm a huge advocate for psychologists, but whatever conditioning is in my brain, every time I go to see my psychologist, I do have these moments where I go, oh, do I really need to do this? This feels a little bit embarrassing for me to do. And then I walk out of there and think, oh, why do I not do this every week? It's just, it's amazing. But but sometimes it is a little bit of a hurdle to get over. But I think if you find the right person, you get over that hurdle, you'll be super thankful that you did. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. Sorry to interrupt this episode, but I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you guys about my very first Brisbane-based women's health and empowerment event, Empower, Nourish, Sustain. Join me for an incredible morning that will empower you, nourish you, and sustain your healthy behaviors long-term. Along with two leading industry experts, psychologist Dr. Libby Quinn and exercise physiologist and dietitian Angelique Clark, we will guide you through the issues women struggle with along their health journey, including self sabotage, nutrition myths, perfectionism, limiting beliefs, and mindful eating. And you will also have the chance to have your questions answered by our experts on our Q&A panel. You will leave the event armed with the latest evidence-based and scientific research around nutrition and psychology, a ton of practical and easy-to-implement strategies, a nourished and happy tummy, new girlfriends, and of course, a goodie bag. Bring your best friend, your mum, sister, colleague, or daughter, or simply come solo as you'll instantly make friends in our warm and welcoming community of women supporting women. I cannot wait to see you there on Sunday, March the 22nd in Brisbane. Tickets are $99 a person, and they come with Lunch, refreshments, goodie bags, and lucky door prizes. Pop on over to my website, www.leanneward.com.au to purchase a ticket, but hurry, there are less than 35 left for the Brisbane event on March the 22nd. Thank you guys so much for supporting my very first live event, and let's get straight back into the podcast. 
Now, I'm going to take you back when we were talking about emotional eating and particularly focusing around that nighttime eating or that weekend eating, because I feel that's what a lot of people do struggle with in terms of their emotions, because, you know, they get to the end of the day, they finally put their feet up and it's like all of these emotions come flooding in, whereas sometimes at work or during the day, they're just so busy, they don't really stop and focus on those emotions. So a lot of people say to me, you know, I know I shouldn't do it, but in the moment, like I can't help myself. So what are some strategies for women or men as well, you know, in the moment when they can actually consciously realize they're not hungry. They're like, I probably shouldn't eat this. I know I don't need this. Maybe I should go and eat a proper meal instead. But that urge to eat is so strong and they just can't, you know, they give into it every time. Like, What would you say would be a great starting point for them when they just feel like they're almost too weak to deny themselves that food and they just keep doing it again and again and reinforcing that behavior? Yeah, this is a really, really good point, Land, because we can kind of, you know, think about it very rationally and very logically. And this is what we do in psychologist sessions and dietitian sessions. And we sort of make a really good plan and say, okay, instead of, uh, you know, having half a block of chocolate, I'm going to go and have a shower. Someone might have heard that and think, that's actually a really, really good idea. Um, the problem is that all of that neural mapping that I was talking about that starts since we're born and we just consolidate this over our lives, this happens in a part of our brain that we call the impulsive system in your brain. So it's a very subconscious system in your brain. And that's why you can get this conscious unconscious mismatch really often where consciously we're thinking, actually, you know what? I don't really want to be doing this. I may have even gotten so far as to realize I could do something else that would work better, but there is this powerful subconscious addiction loop that is still pulling us towards the fridge and the pantry. So, I'm really glad that you raised this because I think this is a very big sticking point for a lot of people. And I think that the best thing we can actually do is acknowledge that it's really, really hard. So, even if we consciously know that there's a better way to go, it's still going to feel really hard for quite a while. Mm. Now, I think this is really important because the diet industry sells us all of these promises of fast easy results with very limited effort. So when we get to this point, we feel like, oh, I've listened to this great podcast. I've got a couple of really good tips. And we we subconsciously expect it to be really easy. But I think if we can acknowledge that sometimes this is going to be really, really hard, Mm -hmm. even if I can acknowledge the new strategy is going to work 10 times better for me, I still might not feel like doing it. So, this is where if we acknowledge that it's going to be really, really hard, we can acknowledge that this is going to be a difficult choice for us to make, but we can make the choice anyway. So, we're empowered by realizing that sometimes this can feel really, really hard. And I think that's the first point. Um, It actually should feel a bit weird when you're developing new habits. So, I say to people, I want you to embrace the weird. Mm -hmm. And so, it might take for you to get to that that whole point of, and we'll just go, go with that example of the shower, of finishing the shower to think, oh, that actually was a whole lot better. And then your neural circuitry starts to realize, oh, I'm going to form showers as part of my addiction loop, a bit of a positive addiction loop. But it, it's quite likely that all the way due to getting re- all the way to getting to that shower, and even sometimes in the shower, you might still have the craving for the chocolate. So I think that the more that we acknowledge that sometimes these decisions 
can be hard. When we're changing habits, it can be hard. When we're changing our deep neural circuitry, it can be hard. The more empowered we are to keep going with it. 100%. And I'm going to bring you back and just sort of break this concept um, down a little bit more because you mentioned neural mapping a few times and there might be a few listeners at home who you know may have never heard this term before, but am I right in saying that this is almost like that neuroplasticity in our brain? So when we do things again and again and again, it almost becomes like hardwired into our brain. And that's why when in the moment of we're feeling a bit weak, it's easier to do the thing that we've always done a hundred times and doing that new thing, such as putting the chocolate back in the fridge or the pantry walking upstairs, actually having the shower is so difficult. But every time you do it, it gets that little bit easier and that little bit easier because you're changing that neural mapping in your brain and you're almost creating like this alternative pathway or alternative route. Is that almost how this like neuroplasticity works in our brain? Did I get that right? Leanne, that is not almost, that is exactly how the neuroplasticity works in our brain. And we're, okay, <laughs> we're not even almost forming new neural pathways, we are. So it is like a highway in your brain. And <laughs> and and right now, if the, the highway in your brain is sending you to the pantry, what we need to do is we need to create a, a little goat track in your brain to the shower. And of course, the shower could be anything and the, the chocolate could be anything. It's just the, the old behavior and the new behavior. But then every single time you do it, that little goat track towards the alternative becomes a little paved road and then it becomes a proper road and then it becomes a highway and then it becomes a super highway. And, and over time, the new habits will just become second nature just absolutely automatic and you do them without thinking at all. But there is a bit of a transition period and that transition period is really how long is a piece of string. It depends on so many factors mm-hmm. that you you really do have to, to to go through before you can get to that stage. And and we can we can see it when we talk about the um the goat track turning into a road, turning into a highway. We can actually measure that in the amount of neurons and the neural connectivity in your brain. So you really are in a very literal, concrete sense, changing your brain. And I think that that when it is hard uh, and and you feel like you can't do it, that's the hope. The hope is, you know what? If I do this today, it's going to be just that little bit easier tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, it's going to be that little bit less hard. And every single time you do it, you're changing those neural maps. And then those those old superhighways just get a little bit overgrown. They're not tended to very well. And they start to die off slowly. And then you start to, to end up with these new, what I call, more marvelous methods to manage your moods that just happen on autopilot. Love it. Love it. So it's really is about time and consistency and just that kindness and knowing that if you do go back to that old highway, it's okay. And you're only human. It doesn't mean that you've failed, but then to jump ship and get straight back on, you know, take the first exit off and get back onto the new highway the next time around. Yeah. And I think that highway metaphor is perfect there, Leanne, because, you know, Mm. we've all, you know, gone to, you you might travel a certain way to work and you're going on that that road, but you have to go somewhere different. And then suddenly you just find yourself on the path to work. It just happens so naturally. So, so you definitely do have to have compassion for yourself because it is absolutely normal uh, that you are going to go back to the old habits. And it's not a matter of that's you being a failure. It's not a matter of even it, it being a problem. 
it is just part of the process of change that you will have to take time to gravitate towards those new decisions. But every time you make that decision, you are really uh, tending to that new superhighway that you're developing in your brain. Mm, Love it. And I guess that links me perfectly to the next point I wanted to discuss with you around self-sabotage. So would you then say that self-sabotage and a lot of times that women, you know, at nighttime, I know I shouldn't eat this. Oh, I've had a bad day. I'm going to eat it anyway. That that's really self-sabotaging because we know we want to do something different. We might've set ourselves a goal to, you know, um, do X, Y, or Z or to be, become a little bit healthier and that sort of thing. And when we're self-sabotaging, is that because we're consciously or unconsciously leaning back on those old highways or those that old neural mapping and because we've done it so many times it's just so easy to go back and do it again which at the end of the day almost becomes that self-sabotage yeah i i I think you're exactly right a lot of people come to psychologists and say "I'm, i'm sabotaging myself there must be some deep underlying reason why and sometimes there is so sometimes there's something underneath your habit that um, that really needs to be worked on. That could be some sort of issue with your your body image or a dieting mindset or something deeper related to past trauma in your life. So sometimes that happens. But what I really like to do with people is start with the actual changing of the habits because for a lot of people, that's all it is. It's actually just that what we call quote-unquote sabotage is just the power of those old unconscious habits and the fact that that they really pull us back into that old way of doing things and it can be really, really challenging to develop new habits. So, I think for me with most people, that's the first point of call. The sabotage is just in how difficult it can be to change habits. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that as well, knowing that it's going to be hard and you will fa- you will fail, but change does take time and hard work as well. Absolutely. It, it's, it kind of sounds almost a bit negative, <laughs> but I think that you, you want to know, like if you want to get a dietetics degree or if you want to build a house, you want to know up front what you're up for and that then empowers you to deal with the reality of it. You don't hit a little speed bump and become unprepared and just abandon all of your efforts. So I guess that probably leads me nicely into my next question for you is how do we retrain our brain or how do we create these new neural pathways? You know, some women may have been hardwired into believing particular stories about themselves. You know, people say to me, I have no willpower or, um, you know, I'm, I always do this to myself. I'm addicted to chocolate. I can't stop eating it. How can, I guess, our listeners stop and recognize these stories that they're telling themselves are just reinforcing this neural mapping in their brain? And how do we go about reframing these stories? that we tell ourselves and retraining our brain in order to, you know, help us overcome some of these difficult um, neural mappings that we've we've had since, you know, childhood or that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really, really good question. And I think that the first answer is the way you retrain your brain is as hard but as simple as making different choices. So when you make a different choice, you are retraining your brain. You're building the new highway. Those connections are becoming stronger and the old ones are becoming weaker. But because it's so uncomfortable at times, we don't want to catastrophize. It's not always going to be hard. We just need to be prepared for when it is hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So when it is hard, what we need to acknowledge is that sometimes those negative thoughts are actually our brain trying to protect ourselves so our brain says, oh, Leanne doesn't want to um, 
she doesn't want to put up with all the stress of finding out whether having a shower is actually going to work. She just wants to eat the chocolate. Let's just, we know that the chocolate works. So it's that deep subconscious part of her brain, that impulsive system is talking to that conscious, rational, logical part of our brain, the conscious or what we call the reflective system. And it's, it's saying, I'm really uncomfortable. Throw me up an excuse. And the reflective system, that conscious, rational, logical thinking part of our brain is going, oh, I, I don't have time for that new alternative or that new alternative is, is too expensive or oh, that's just not me or I've got no willpower. And what we can do there is just acknowledge that our mind is actually trying to take care of us. And because these thoughts come from such a deep place, I which might sound funny for a psychologist, I don't like to try and change or reframe these particular thoughts because I think they can be so deep and so ingrained that trying to tell yourself something different, like, no, I do have willpower, can just seem unbelievable. Or it can even kind of get you into a fight with your own mind. I don't have any willpower. Yes, you do. You can do it. No, I really, really don't. And the whole time you're having that fight in your mind, you're just going to the pantry and <laughs> opening and eating the, the chocolate. Uh, so what I sometimes like to do is do um, practice a little exercise of mindfulness of your thoughts. So rather than trying to change them, just acknowledge that they're thoughts. And my favorite way to do this is really, really simple. It's just to say, I'm having the thought. So you just, once you catch the thought, maybe it's, I have no willpower. You want to then catch the thought and say, ah, I'm noticing I'm having the thought that I've got no willpower. And that then starts to give you a little bit of space from the thought, a little bit of distance. Uh, It may not seem so real necessarily anymore. And it gives you that little bit of psychological flexibility. So it's a really, really cool strategy to, if you notice that your mind is saying things that are pulling you towards the fridge or pulling you towards the pantry, just catch those things and say, oh, I'm noticing I'm having a thought. And it might be, I notice I'm having the thought that I've got no willpower, or it might be, I'm noticing I'm having the thought that I always do this at this time of day or I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I really, really need this food, but that's just a thought. And when we do that, we can acknowledge that our thoughts, while they might seem really compelling and they might seem true and they might even seem like it's us speaking, they are just words and pictures and stories in our minds. So that would be what I would say as a start is to to try not to fight with your thoughts, which can sometimes get you into trouble, especially if you're you're really not going to change those thoughts but just to choose to tune out from those thoughts. Just notice that they are just thoughts. It's not facts. It's not you. And you don't have to do what those thoughts say. Mm-hmm. So almost you are not your thoughts. 100%. That is the, the sneakiest thing that our thoughts do is they pretend that they are us. Mm-hmm. And our thoughts are not us. Our thoughts are learned stories and words and pictures in our mind. And when we recognize that, then we suddenly have the power to listen or to tune out of them. Love it. And we had another wonderful psychologist on um, a couple of, quite a few episodes back now, Dr. Libby. And she used to say, once you catch that thought, then almost physically 
take it out of your mind and sort of like put it on a chair or the couch next to you and just let that thought sit next to you for a while and acknowledge that it's there, but acknowledge that it's not you. It's a fully different sort of being to what you are, which goes beautifully with your strategy as well. And just try to almost disassociate ourselves from those thoughts and realize that they're just thoughts. They're just things like, you know, air or oxygen or that sort of thing as well. Absolutely. Yep. Disassociating from the thoughts. We often call this technique distancing. So getting a bit of space from the thought or even defusion is unfusing yourself from the thought. And the cool thing is if you want to um, Google defusion strategies, you'll find a million. So I love that one of Dr. Libby's is just to put it somewhere and notice that it's there. Um, I've suggested you can um, can practice saying I'm having the thought and then repeating the thought. Um, another way to do it that I really like is uh, think of the thought as being like a radio show. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know what, every, you know, 6.30 when I get home and I'm stressed, this, this emotional eating radio show just turns on and it says, oh, I've had the biggest day in the world. I, you know, I just need to eat. I don't care about, you know, how it's going to make me feel. I'll eat better tomorrow. All of those things that your mind says and just acknowledge, you know what, I can't actually help that that radio show turns on at that time of night. I can't control what the, the voices on the radio show are even saying. I can't control how loud it is. But what I can control is whether I tune in and buy all of the ads that the radio show has or whether I tune out and focus on things that are more important in my life. Love it. And I love how you talk about that sort of like disassociation as well. And it actually made me laugh um, inside because I had this thought where, you know, we were talking about taking that thought and sort of almost putting it next to you and trying to create distance between that thought. And the immediate picture that came to my mind was that that thought became a soccer ball. And I just like literally kicked it out the door and, and got it away from me, which is, and I know yeah. I'm kind of probably like an extreme person compared to the norm. But for me, when I used to find with my emotional eating, the biggest thing that I struggled with it once I felt the need to eat a food or I let that emotion consume me. It was all I could think about. And it it was literally all I could think about. I was like, I need this food. I need it. I need it. I need it. I need it until I had it. And what really helps me is just being able to focus on something else entirely and taking that thought, taking it out of my head, placing it on the couch next to me, turning it into a soccer ball and booting it out of the room, almost like even in my head gave me relief. And I was like, oh, now it's gone. Now I can go focus on something else. So I know it probably won't work for everyone. But for me, that's probably something that I used to do almost without even knowing that there was a name and a, I guess like a psychology technique associated with it. But I always used to physically try to take those thoughts out of my head and just sort of like boot, a, boot them out of the room. And I used to find that that was super helpful. So I wasn't just constantly focusing on it and going over and over and over again in my head with the same thought. Yeah. And I think, I think that's actually a beautiful example, Ian, because what we're really talking about here is we're talking about just a new way to relate to that thought so you're not all caught up in it. So it has less weight and less control over you. And whether you turn it into a soccer ball or put it on a chair or acknowledge that it's a thought or a radio show, or often you'll come up with your own weird one. It's that's all we're doing. It's, you know, sometimes I think people think, oh, psychology technique. I'm, you know, I want to really want to get it right. I don't want to stuff it up. It's like, if it works for you, and often, funnily enough, then humor does come into it because a lot of these thoughts are really kind of silly. Yeah. Like you catch it, you're like, when you catch it, it's like, am I really saying to myself that I was going to die without this chocolate? <laughs> Sometimes humor comes into it and that can kind of just be its own form of distancing. Oh, I was a bit crazy. And then you can go on with making better choices. Absolutely love it. Now, Glenn, 
everything has been amazing that you've said. We've really, really taken a deep dive into emotional eating, which is exactly why I wanted you on this podcast. So we probably run out of time for anything more today, but I'd love to sort of finish with um, any other pearls of wisdom you might be able to leave our listeners with around conquering emotional eatings or really getting a hold of our thoughts and not letting ourselves become our thoughts. Yep. Look, I agree with you, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me on because I think we've had an awesome chat about this. Uh, And the only thing that I would say is that all of these different techniques, you know, writing down your feelings or asking yourself, is this about food or mood or uh, catching unhelpful thoughts or making uh, difficult decisions that might feel a little bit unpleasant to overcome that sabotage and create new habits, all of this, even if you know deep down that it, it's going to make for a better, happier, healthier you and it's a great choice, it's going to feel a little bit weird. So I would just say to embrace the weird. You know, the first time that you drive a car or the first time that you learn to walk, it doesn't feel normal. And so sometimes change does feel a little bit weird. And that's all I would say that that pick one or two little things from this podcast. Don't overwhelm yourself. Just pick one or two things that resonated with you. Give it a go and embrace the weird. Love it. Love it. (laughs) So great. Now, Glenn, where can our listeners reach out to you? Where can they find you? Can they email you? Um, Do you offer sort of online consultations if they're not in Brisbane? Yeah, totally, totally. So um, a really good place to find us is just our website, which is www.com weightmanagementpsychology.com.au. Myself and all of my team do uh, do Skype consults because there's not that many psychologists that really specialize in this food, exercise, weight, body image. So we'd love you to, to join us there. And we do um, online consults and we, we also do online programs and stuff there too. You can catch me on Instagram just at um, Glenn two N's, J-L-E double N. Dad was generous. Glenn McIntosh, uh, M-A-C-K-I-N-T-O-S-H. I spell that out because it's the weirdest way to spell McIntosh. Um, and I think there's some pretty good places to get in touch. Or um, if you go to the website, you'll get a little um, one of those annoying email pop-ups that, that ask you to join our, um, that ask you if you want our ebook. I've got a free little ebook. And, and from there, you can really get all connected with us. You've got my email. I, I do a lot with my email community. Um, so I really like to 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 have a good relationship with them. I, I give a lot to, to my email community, but I also I learn a lot. So there's a, a lot of interaction. So I think they're good places. The website, my Instagram, um, and and probably our newsletter, which you can get to from the website or the Instagram. Wonderful. And I'll definitely link those um, in the show notes as well so the listeners know exactly where to find them. And then and lastly, oh, cool. you've got an amazing new book coming out or is out already. It's sitting in front it of me right now. Out. Yep, wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's out from really the 1st of January and it's actually been going crazy. It already <laughs> sold out for a period there on Booktopia and on Amazon. So it's really exciting. I've been writing this thing for, a whole, I wrote it for all of last year. So it's it's crazy to me that it's um, that it's actually in physical form now and it's called thin sanity that's about our craziness with always wanting to be thinner no matter what size or shape we are so there's a lot about body image um and we we have seven steps in there to transform your mindset and say goodbye to dieting forever funnily enough um what we've been talking about today is actually step 
six, Nurture Your Inner Self, which is the, the chapter on emotional eating. So it's kind of a comprehensive guide for people who feel like they've maybe been on the, the dieting merry-go-round a, a little bit too long and want to really transform their headspace and, and say goodbye to dieting for good. Wonderful. Now, the book's called Thin Sanity, isn't it? And where can our listeners find that if they'd like to grab a copy? Perhaps they're not in, um, in Brisbane or near a bookstore. Yep. So you can get it on if you go to um, the Weight Management Psychology website or my other website, www.glennmackintosh.com. You can find the links to, um, you can find it on Booktopia, you can find it on Amazon. It is in bookstores all around. Um, So I think they're the best places to go. Booktopia, if you're Australia, New Zealand, um, it's in ebook form all over the world. Um, so you can get it anywhere via Amazon or Apple Books, anywhere in the world as an ebook. Um, and at the moment, we're hoping that it is going to, to move internationally as a, a physical book. Mm-hmm. But we do know a lot of people really like the actual book book. Um, so we've actually set up for those people. We've become booksellers. Um, we've set up for those people. If you really are, you're not in Australia or New Zealand and you really really want the physical book just go to glennmackintosh.com and and there's a special order that we can do there where we'll send it to you anywhere in the world and as a little thank you for that I actually sign all of those copies because we just send them out from our office wonderful so I'll make sure that I link all of that in the show notes so our listeners know exactly where to find that and thank you so much Glenn for all of your pearls of wisdom it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today thank you so much for having me Leanne it's been great to talk to you Wonderful. And guys, we will catch you in the next podcast.